Welcome everyone to the Film Studies podcast from University of Salford. I'm Martin Flanagan, I'm the programme leader and I teach quite a lot of the course as well and I'm joined today by one of our first year students who I'll introduce in a second who's going to be reviewing some films for us and that's Sam Clark. Um, just to cover a little bit of what we're all about, if this is the first time you've listened to an episode of our podcast, it's episode eight I believe. Um, Film Studies at University of Salford which is in um, Greater Manchester, very close to Manchester itself, um, is a critical and historical and theoretical course all about, well, the criticism, history and theory of film, really, uh, and some related media where they crop up as well. We're all about studying texts and reading them closely. We're all about examining the history of film and understanding audiences and also understanding the industry, um, which we look at very closely, particularly the British film industry, which we which will be a little bit relevant to what we talk about later. There's a quite a full introduction by me to what we're all about as a course uh, at the beginning of the first episode of this podcast. So if you found us today, maybe you found us on Anchor website or you found us on Spotify, then just scroll back to episode one and uh, I give a full introduction to the course in that episode. So we're delighted to have you listening to us. Um, if you want to find out more information about the BA degree in film studies here at Salford, go to salford.ac.uk forward slash course finder, the word course, and then finder, no breaks. I'll put that in the notes for the episode. And you can also find out when specific undergraduate open days are happening. Uh, and that's the same address, salford.ac.uk forward slash the word undergraduate forward slash open hyphen days. And again, I'll put that link in. Um, there are some what are called applicant visit days coming up where people who already have an offer from us are invited to come in and meet us and uh, do a few activities. So I'll be meeting some people in March and uh, possibly in April as well along those lines. But we also have some more general uh, informal university open days. So go to those addresses and you can find out all about that. And hopefully we'll see some of you on the course in the future. So um, we are a critical course. As I said, we're not a practical course. And because we're critical, we have a lot of critics and we're training all of our students to be critics. And sometimes they're acting as critics independently outside of what they're learning, but obviously using the lessons of what they're learning in terms of their own film reviewing and film criticism. And Sam Clark is with me today. Hi, Sam. Hiya, hiya. And Sam is a first year who only joined us in September. So I'm going to ask Sam about his kind of what his introduction to the course has been like and also uh, what your background is like, Sam, in terms of coming to a film studies course, kind of where you came from in your previous studies and also yeah, what, what do you think you're like as a film reviewer and why do you enjoy doing it? Yeah, so um, hi, I'm Sam Clark. I'm a first-year film student. And um, yeah, as Martin said there, just everything about film reviewing, I um, I love doing. Obviously, um, I want to do it as a living and uh, any opportunity that sees me able to do it, I'll you know happily do it and um, I'd love to do it, yeah. That's fantastic. And do, do you, you write your own reviews um, outside the course, Sam? Because obviously we're at the moment in the stage you're at in the course, it's second semester, first year. So it's kind of mainly essays and presentations you've been assessed on, isn't it? Do you, do you kind of write your own reviews for fun? Um, I, in the past, what I've done is um, for my college, for example, they did a newspaper ah. and magazine. And yeah, um, yeah I, I got on that as soon as I could because I knew that would be a great opportunity. And so, yeah, I did that and I absolutely loved doing it. So, yeah. And do you think that you have kind of uh, changed at all as a film reviewer? Have you, have you kind of learn anything particular about how to do it or are there any are there any film reviewers out there that you particularly admire and kind of like their style 
Um, yeah, I think I have improved in my reviews. I think I've, I word things differently now. And I think I've improved in my writing style and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then obviously Mark, Mark Kermode, who's my absolute idol and hero. And then yeah. um, I've, I've met him as well. And he's obviously given me great advice on what to do. Oh, and that's then, great. Um, you, you haven't told me that. That's interesting. How come you met Mark yeah. Kermode? Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I'll never forget the advice he gave me and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. What were the circumstances of meeting him? Um, it was actually um, a shout to my dad here. Um, he he got me tickets. He got us tickets for, for a book tour. He came to Newcastle with his book to do a talk. And he surprised me one day saying, we're going to go see him. And um, I was like, that, that's that's incredible. Thank you so much for doing it. So it's, it's, it's actually all credit to my dad for me meeting him. So, yeah. Fantastic. And can you share any little, what one little nugget of advice he gave you? Perhaps you don't have to give the whole game away. Um, he just told me to sort of be determined and never take no for an answer, basically, yeah. Yeah, well, that sounds like good advice. I mean, he's a uh, he's real doyen of, of British film critics, isn't he? And, Absolutely, and, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's been some there's been some great. I mean, it's interesting because I've never been a, a reviewer in that way myself. I've come up through a completely academic route, but there's some reviewers whose work holds up so well. All the ones that all the odd reviewers that kind of cross over into their writing is so in depth that they you know it's it's basically like reading academic work when you read them and yeah absolutely um, yeah you know when I was kind of doing my undergraduate degrees and PhD and stuff there was a guy called Derek Malcolm who was the resident film critic at the Guardian who's we you know the, the position that Peter Bradshaw has now Derek Malcolm was always very always very good but the one I really love is a guy called David Thompson who yeah uh, actually yeah. writes you know uh, writes books of full of criticism as well as kind of doing you know, pieces in the newspapers and pieces of science sound and so on, but his books, you know, he's written a few histories of, of studios and, and uh, books on individual films. Well, I did a very good book on the alien films, for instance. And um, yeah. it's, it's a real delight to read a good critic, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'll listen, I'll listen to them, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, you've set yourself a, a very, uh, you know, quite a low bar there, Sam. All you've got to do is try and out, out critic Mark Commode in this podcast. So you can go <laughs> Um, yeah. Very, very quickly, how's the first sort of five months been for you on the course? What have you enjoyed it's, about it's, it? It's been very good. I mean, I've obviously a whole new experience to me. I mean, viewing films in a way that I'd never thought I'd see them and learning about so many areas that I never knew before yeah. and um, <clears throat> improving on my writing as well. Obviously, a new, new form to like adapt yeah. to. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've yeah. loved it so far. Did you... Um when you say like improving on your writing, did you kind of, uh, has it been useful getting feedback, getting feedback on that? Because obviously that's one of the things that helps people get better, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Because in that way I can obviously improve myself and yeah, and just become better basically. Yeah. And you're aware, aren't you, that in the second year, there's a whole film journalism module. So the kind of no, stuff you're doing now yeah. out of your own interest yeah. is going to be, you know, you're going, to, you're going to be able to do that for, for an assessment, which is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. So that's about a year away for you, or, or maybe more like about 10 months now that we're in March. So you'll be starting yeah. that in quite early, actually, in January next year, because there's all, you know, the different dates next year. So you'll, you'll yeah, you'll be doing that quite soon, sooner than sooner than you think. Um, yeah. <laughs> OK, great. So you picked three films, didn't you? And well, you picked two films and then I encouraged you to pick a third, um, which had a bit of common ground with the two of us. So I was pretty sure I wouldn't be able yeah. to get to see at the cinema, the two films that you picked. And, and so it has proved I didn't manage to get to see them. So there's yeah. two films about which you need to be very careful about spoilers with, for yeah. me, if nobody else, but hopefully the listeners, yeah. um, you know, will appreciate you avoiding spoilers. 
And then in the third film, maybe we can be a little bit more spoilery about it's been out for quite a while. But do you want to introduce the films that you're going to talk about? So I'll be talking about The Souvenir, Moonfall and Uncharted. Great. So the Su- uh, Uncharted and Moonfall are both 2022 releases, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And I guess came out in January slash February, but they were really in the cinemas in February. Uh, Uncharted yeah. is still, still around, isn't it, in lots of cinemas? Yes. yeah. Uh, so maybe I will get to see it before it goes away. And The Souvenir, the reason I asked you to watch it was to bring something British in so that we could have a slightly different um, conversation because we've got two Hollywood films, but also because The Souvenir Part 2, there are two films in this, not quite a sequel exactly, but two films in this set, and the director's called Joanna Hogg, and The Souvenir Part 2 was in cinemas in February. So The Souvenir had been broadcast on BBC TV uh, I think there's BBC Money in the Souvenir. I think it's it's a BBC production, partly. Yeah. Um, souvenir was broadcast on BBC in January, so it was on iPlayer in February, and that's when you watched it, wasn't it? Yeah, that's it, yeah. So The Souvenir is by Joanna Hogg. Moonfall is a Roland Emmerich film, I think? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, so that's Roland Emmerich of Independence Day and Day After Tomorrow and 2012 and all those films. And then uh, Uncharted, I think, is Ruben Fleischer. And we were having a discussion about this, and... Um, I, I, from my recognition of the name, I think Ruben Fleischer is, is the Venom director. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, whichever order you want to go in, uh, tell us what you thought of these February releases, Sam. OK, so Souvenir. Um, so Souvenir is set in the 80s and it's about a young and aspiring film student called Julie who enters an, 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 an enigmatic relationship with a man whose intentions and and nature may remain unknown and this is not helped by the fact that those around her mainly her friends and family have their concerns about it and um i'll leave it at that in terms of plot so um, he's he's very mysterious isn't he and there are suggestions that maybe he has an important job and that's why he's away a lot but there's also suggestions that that could be a bit of a fiction and he's away doing something else most of the time and we, we never really find out for sure which of those is which of those kind of positions is true yeah, absolutely. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love this and there are many reasons for that. So um, the first being is that this is a very observational and voyeuristic kind of film. Mm-hmm. We are stood watching people interact and have conversations and it's almost as if we're intruding or interrupting in their lives. And it's like this is emphasised by the cinematography yeah. as we are yeah. we're placed behind people or to the side quite a lot but not involved not quite involved but then again very much in that sense and um the conversations they have feel completely natural and unscripted in adverted commas mind um which gives the film a satisfying sense of authenticity and reality almost documentary-esque i would actually say um in fact the whole thing's very relaxing and ambient its entire scenes are built only on dialogue and very intricately placed camera positions that again just sit there, a, a sense of intruding again. Yeah, um, it, it, there's a lot of kind of interior. It, it's not, uh, it, it's you know, a, anyone who's heard of any Joanna Hogg films before will sort of know that she's not an action director or anything like that. Absolutely, but, but yeah. she, you know, you use the word observational, and and there's a, I think you make a really good point about the fact that there's a voyeuristic feel, but at the same time, you are still quite detached, so it can feel a bit like looking through a window on. Yeah, people, but that there is a yeah, an unforced an unforcedness and a naturalness about it, and it unfolds in a very unhurried way as well. So I think some people I know found the 
movie a bit slow moving, but I think yeah, it feels more like you're getting to know a, a small group of people in a specific time and a specific context. And that's what I liked about it, which, which does actually, you know, pay off in the second film as well, where it's the same people, you know, a few months on after a, a big event at the end of the Super yeah. who won't give away. Um, yeah. And it's very much like that kind of spending time with the characters type film, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's all, for me, it was also quite nice to see Newcastle sort of referenced and, re- and represented in there, because that's where I'm from. And so when I saw that in the film, I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's really cool. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an unusual one, isn't it? Because you know from the publicity for the film that it's going to be very London-based and that she's actually... Yeah, the, it, the main character, yeah. Julie, is a film student, isn't she? And um, yeah. she's played by Honor Swinton-Byrne, who is, I think, the daughter yeah. of Tilda Swinton. And Tilda Swinton plays her mother, so I think that probably ensures that she's the daughter of Tilda Swinton. And um, so she's part of a very, let's, let's be honest, very posh London set. Uh, very much yeah he's a, a film student so it was a bit surprising to see the northeast pop up in it wasn't it yeah yeah I, I wasn't expecting it to say the least but yeah that was that was quite nice in there yeah yeah and i think the the performances in general are very very soft and then as a result of that engaging relatable which is very important they're very convincing and yeah, people are like genuine is great isn't he tom burke is yeah the, is the boy absolutely and um, yeah yeah like yeah, people people are act like human beings, and it's completely real. Yeah. Yeah, people will know, or people may know Tom Burke from um, some TV adaptations of, of actually J.K. Rowling um, mm-hmm. thrillers uh, called. Oh, I'll look it up while you're speaking next. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's he's been on TV quite a lot in those, but he's also been the lead in um, in a few films. He was the he was the sort of co-lead or the the kind of second most important character in a great film called Telstar, which is a film about a British yeah. music producer from about 10 years ago. Um, and he's very good in it. And I've always kind of watched him since then. And he's, he's great in this, isn't he? He really needs that enigmatic uh, kind of quality, doesn't he? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wasn't very familiar with him before this, but now that I see him, I'm like, Ooh, this is very interesting. What else can you do, basically? But yeah, he, um, he perfectly embodies his character as, as performance is very cold and quite distant and you just you don't know much about him and it's and it's very mysterious and stuff yeah um, you, you can totally believe that a person even a person who was spending a lot of time with him would be completely wrong-footed you know and and, and um might go because of the way he presents himself which is also as a virtually as a member of the aristocracy or certainly as a kind of a up, very upper yeah. class character um he, he has that kind of way of sort of floating around as if practical things don't don't really matter but he's actually got again without spoilers he's got a big problem hasn't he which we find out later on and um exactly yeah it's a great yeah it's a great performance I, 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 and, and you know from from um on a burn playing uh julian as well you know who has to react a lot to, to him yeah um i do a slight negative i would give is that i would have liked to see a little bit more of tilda swinton um like given the given the kind of all she has in the film i I forgot she was in it for most part until she turned up again. And then yeah. again, I was like, oh, yeah, of course, you're in this. But then again, I did forget that. So some, yeah, a little bit Julie's more... Julie's parents are supporting her, aren't they, through film school? And uh, kind of financially, they're quite they're quite rich and they're kind of financially supporting her. But that becomes, in, in itself, that becomes a, a bit of an issue. But she, um, yeah, she's quite fitfully in the film. And she's it's funny what you were saying about the very naturalistic performances, because I think Tilda Swinton can, you know, sometimes she has... She has roles that are very, uh, you know, outlandish, like in um, Snowpiercer, for instance. But here, yeah, she's incredibly yeah. naturalistic, isn't she? It's, she's really believable. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, yeah, all in all, what I liked most about it is the easygoing nature of it all. It's a very relaxed and authentic feeling film. And I thought it was very convincing in its execution. And what is important is that I was invested and I cared all throughout the film. And I thought everything just felt so realistic. And yeah, I, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, I felt very invested as well. I guess we should put a little bit of a content warning in for people in that we won't say what event, but there is some tough stuff in there. So although it's yeah, absolutely, it, it's kind of um, relaxed in pace, there are some sort of emotionally quite upsetting moments and people probably want to do a little bit of reading about it maybe before, before watching it. But I would definitely recommend, because I guess we'll probably see the souvenir part two, you know, come on to yeah. streaming or BFI player or maybe come on to TV before the year is out. So... I think you will love. I think you'll love that one as well, Sam, because um, it it kind of has all the stuff you liked about the first one, but then it also has a a definite step up in terms of sort of liveliness. It's funnier. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. There's more stuff going on. There's a lot more um, coverage of the Richard Ayoade. You know, he plays a film director, doesn't he, Richard Ayoade? Yeah, I, it was nice to see him <laughs> pop up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's in he's in the second one a lot more, and um, yeah, but great pair of films and, and Joanna Hogg. Um, is you know she's really one of the great british directors at the moment i think people people who are listening to this and thinking that your description makes this film sound good might want to check out her earlier films as well which she often worked with tom hiddleston in the past so people yeah, who yeah. have a bit of a liking for him might want to check out joanna hogg okay that's great thanks sam so um which do you want to talk about next so let's do um moonfall um okay so not necessarily a film that requires much thinking to it but um basic setup is the moon was actually built by aliens it's out of orbit and it's going to kill us all and okay. only a select few select few people with very specific and convenient skills can save us that, this that sounds, is all you yeah, need I, to know i've deliberately stayed away from reading too much about this because it because it sounds pretty high concepts and i thought if i read the wrong thing I might get the whole point of the film in like one sentence. Yeah. This is, but yeah, that sounds a little bit Armageddon-esque to me. You know, like sending the oil yes. guys up to. So, is that the kind of the kind of vibe we're talking about? Yeah. So, it's what is what I found it disappointingly derivative of. Ironically enough, other Emmerich films right. and sci-fi right. and sci-fi in general. So, so he's, he's got being a self-plagiarist, is he? Yeah, pretty much. Um, you've got Gravity, Geostorm, and basically anything involving space or aliens, he does here. Right. So, yeah. So, yeah, same things that happen in his other movies just happen again, which I was surprised by because I at least thought it wouldn't be as copycat as it actually is. Um, yeah, it's just chunks of his other other disaster films rolled into one big nuclear bomb of a film, basically. Um, yeah, which, have, you which any, I, have you got I, any ideas why that is? Have you got any ideas uh, why he sort of run out of run out of um, you know inspiration, or is it? Do you think it's just the the kind of he's maybe a bit too comfortable on the sort of sci-fi territory? Yeah, I mean, I mean, my my it's pretty basic reasons is that maybe he's that's what he's best at and that's what he's most used to. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, if if he, if he can do it, then you know, good on him because he can he can pull it off. But um, that, that that is a thing because it is undeniably spectacular and there is a good sense of scale here even if some of the effects are laughably atrocious in some shots <laughs> it, it's just it, it's it's unbelievable I mean, it's, quite, it's quite hard to pull off an atrocious <clears throat> effect these days with the quality of cg but are, are you talking yeah. about when sort of organic things are being are being um 
represented like monsters or are you talking about kind of like explosions type of thing because surely surely nobody can get an explosion wrong nowadays I mean, it's it's mainly it's mainly green screen things because you have loads of characters stood around one area and it's just completely fake basically it just doesn't look right. at all authentic but um yeah i mean hats off to everyone for keeping a straight face they do their best with really woeful dialogue i mean truly truly terrible and donald Sutherland even you know rocks up to pick up the check then just disappears and he's <laughs> clearly just he's just he if it then just then just goes so yeah i think donald i think donald Sutherland, who's been a great actor over the years I, th- I think he's just trying to compete with people like christopher lee and donald pleasant so that he can hit about 300 credits you know in his yeah. db because he's really got a huge amount of credits and yeah i mean even he has been in that he's been in that kind of um sci-fi big budget kind of territory before as well hasn't he so i mean he's he's sort of he's a i suppose he's a bit more of a cult face to to include Absolutely. yeah so yeah. so you, so do you think um you sort of mentioned the the sort of poorness of some of the um the sort of poverty of some of the special effects do you think that maybe the film was a bit rushed was there anything about the covid because it came out in 2022 so i'm guessing that a good bit of production must have been in 2020 and 2021 yeah, I understand that maybe some reshooting went on during the pandemic. I wonder if this this might have affected them. I think that that is true, perhaps because I remember <clears throat> reading about the development of this film long before I saw it. It's, it's another film that you you read about, then it comes about a, like a couple of years later, and you go, oh, "Didn't I read about that a long time ago?" Yeah, yeah I, I think that is true. I think it was affected quite badly. Yeah, and um, is is it your kind of? Uh, would you have faith that? Um, Emmerich can kind of bounce back after this because it looks like by looking at his IMDb which I am just doing now it looks like his next project is another version of Stargate which you know he directed back in the early 90s before um, Independence Day so do you think he'll bounce back? I think I think he'll I mean you know the evidence is there that he, that he you know won't do it but um, I don't think he'll do another disaster film that that, that quickly after this I mean he'll go on to other adaptations and stuff but, um, yeah. in terms of another disaster film it, it might be a while, but then again, we never know with with him. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I must admit, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not ravenous to see another disaster film from him. But I did enjoy the original Stargate, and I'm, I'm kind of intrigued. You know, which was, I suppose, between Universal Soldier, which he did with Jean Claude Van Damme, which I really yeah. liked. Uh, yeah. I really liked that a lot. But I was very much into the Jean Claude Van Damme period in the early nineties, and me and my friends really liked that film. And then Stargate came out quite soon after that. Stargate was very impressive, you know, and had Kurt Russell in it, and absolutely everything. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of intrigued as to what he would do because Stargate is, a, it's you know, it stays stays well away from disaster really, and so uh, in, yeah. in a way that yeah. Independence Day does. Um, okay, so it sounds like you didn't get that much out of Moonfall. So should we maybe move on to your? Your third and final film, and see if you have more to more positive to say about it. Yeah, that, and yeah, that's that's the case here. So yeah, um, Uncharted is of course the adaptation of the game, and this is a prequel this time round. So, basic Serp is slowly recruits Nathan Drake to find a lost treasure that's been lost for five hundred years. But yeah. as is always with these films, there are also others that are out there that want it too. So so basic adventure kind of kind of set up there, and. Um, What's interesting here, though, is that there's actually been talks of an Uncharted film since 2009, with wow. every wow. every name under the sun being attached to it, then dropping out. So we've had seven directors, including Dan Trachtenberg, who did Tangle of a Field Lane, 
Seth Gordon, yes. who did the Baywatch film. Sean Levy, who just did Free Guy. Um, Travis Knight, who did Bumblebee, which is the best Transformers film. Um, Neil well, they've, Berger, all been on, they've all been on this and then, and then moved on. Yeah, yeah. And then there's been Neil Berger and David O. Russell. Now, David O. Russell would have been, a, would have been, I think, for me, too much of a kind of not Hollywood kind of director to do it. He did Three Kings in Silver Lines yeah. Playbook and all that. So him, if he did it, I'm not sure what he would have made of the film. But um, he but would have been. A, now, he, I mean, there is sort of he's quite a controversial figure, and he would have been a very interesting choice. Yeah, absolutely. May, maybe um, I can maybe understand why they didn't go with him in the end. I think he would have been a quite surprising <clears throat> choice for it. But um, but now we've obviously landed on Ruben Fleischer, who's done Venom and Zombieland and all that sort of stuff. And as well as that, we've also had seven actors who have been attached to do Nathan Drake, <laughs> such as. Nathan Fillion, Brett Dalton, Mark Warburg, Chris Pratt, Zachary Levi, Jensen Ackles, and Chris Pine. And and for Sully, what's weird is that Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci were in the running apparently as well, which which I find very surprising because obviously Sully's the older kind of mental figure. Yeah. But the kind of the kind of actors who they had in mind for that seemed seemed you know. That's incredible. Too... That's, that's, that's incredible. I mean, uh, I know they de-aged De Niro in. The Irishman, but but it wasn't the most successful de aging I think we've ever seen. So no, no, I'm quite sure how how they would have done that. So are you familiar with the game at all? Yeah, so yeah, I I played the games and found them really really oh. enjoyable. Oh, okay. And so I I went into this not expecting much because from the trailers I was like, yeah, let's see how this goes, and I did enjoy it. Um, it's one of the better in inverted commas video game adaptations. Yeah, but saying that's the very definition of damning the faint praise. <laughs> so, and compared to compared to video game adaptations we've had in the past, this is Citizen Kane. And <laughs> um, I, I will say that. Um, what do what do you think a good uh, video? I mean, obviously, video games can be different from each other, so I don't want to generalize too much. But what do you think a good video game adaptation needs, like in terms of the relationship between the film version and the you know the nature of the game? Well, I mean, it's just. Not not much, but um, to maybe replicate the game as much as possible. I mean, if if it's strange too far away from the source material, it's not done its job. So if it so if it's as loyal to the games as possible, what more could you ask for? Yeah. It's it's yeah. So um, Holland and Wahlberg have chemistry in this because it's the, it's their on screen debut together, yeah. and um, Tom Holland does the action stuff rather well and convincing as expected. But this time around, it's definitely more physical for him as there isn't as much CG as Spider-Man and he yes. isn't wearing a mask. Yes. Um, that Yeah, that they both do the banter and the bickering and the joking rather well. And I was worried that the humour would just be really cringeworthy and just throw away. But there, there are a couple of gags in there which are which are quite funny and you do you do believe in them both together and they work um, quite well. Um, I found it interesting that there are other films within this one so there's two major Goonies, Indiana Jones, the Pirates films, and to some extent Fast and Furious. So these are all um, refer- these are all referenced in this film. Well, not not quite, but you can see. Oh, where but they're, they're the, right. So that they're, they're the kind of yeah. that, the kind of ballpark we're in. Because I, I was thinking about Raiders of the Lost Ark in terms of your description. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't use derivative, but then again, it, it, it's it's still it still remains to be something in and in and of itself, which which I did like. Um, I, I do think an Uncharted film is always going to borrow aspects from other adventure films and action films to make it work. So that that aspect I didn't really mind so much. Yeah. What what 
what I found a little bit desperate the film maybe is that it definitely takes advantage and milks the biggest set piece of all the games because it includes that big plane sequence. And so they, they obviously knew they needed it for film adaptation and went to the went to the the biggest thing without any hesitation. So they went yeah. to the biggest set piece and the biggest moment of the games. You know, they they went straight to it and just thought, yeah, let's do that. So and that's so, something that if it wasn't in the film adaptation, people who were familiar with the game, they would really miss. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as soon as people see that, they'll immediately yeah. identify with it. Um, yeah. I think the plot and story is given as much detail and development as I thought it would. Uh, the setup's done rather quickly, and it doesn't dwell too much on it, and it does get on with things. It does romp along at a good pace and just doesn't take itself too seriously. And I think that that's, that works in its favour because it, it knows what it's trying to be. Um, I do think... So- Something that I was let down by is that some of the effects are quite shoddy and noticeable. Um, yeah. A green screen is distractingly visible and clear in some shots. Now it's 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 got according to you know sources it's 120 million budget, which is handsome for film nowadays. But obviously, yeah. you know, some some elements might not have been as like well thought through as, as that. So um. I mean, everything else has um, enough physicality to it that I was willing to let this aspect slide, especially since Tom Holland does look like he's put through the ringer on this. I mean, he'll be waking up with a few bruises the next day, without a doubt, so yeah. <laughs> Which he probably doesn't uh, when he's uh, doing the just the just the putting the mask on parts of the suit wearing in Spider-Man franchise. And, and then yeah, and there's he, a lot of, Generally, yeah. it's, generally it's a, a CG representation takes over, doesn't it? And you know, exactly. it, that's absolutely fine. It doesn't doesn't um, harm the film in any way. So I noticed that we looked at the, before we started the record, we looked at the box office, the British box office for these two. And we didn't, it wasn't so easy to find for the souvenir, but uh, Moonfall in February took in about two million pounds and Uncharted yeah. took nearly 10 times as much as that. So sort of 19 yeah. million pounds. So it sounds like Uncharted has gone across, I don't know what the reviews were like, but it sounds like it's gone across quite well with audiences. I mean, was it a full cinema when you were there? Um, I saw it at a morning screening, so ah. so no. But um, but in terms of hopes for a franchise, I'm not too sure. But then again, I saw some reports that said the box office figures turned out actually better than expected. Because yeah. it, did, yeah. it, did, it did surpass some expectations that were held for it. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just actually past 300 million, I think. Yeah, on... I, mean, I, know, I know in America it's it was number one for about two or three weeks and, and took over 100 million. And I think in COVID, you know, immediate post-COVID times, I think that does pass expectations, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I thought I thought Antonio Banderas, I mean, his villain was very cliche of the genre. You know, he's the rich villain who's also after the treasure and he's got lots of his disposal and his family too have been looking for it and, and that sort of stuff. So <clears throat> that is an element I shrugged off because the film can only do so much in that regard. Yeah. It does yeah. It does feel like that's the first thing that popped into the writer's head. You know, let's get the richer villain who's, you know, a lot like, he's, he's got more at his disposal, basically. Yes. Um, yeah, I was I shrugged that off. But yeah, that, that was a little, little annoying. One thing I always <laughs> expect with a good adventure film and the kind of, ballpark you've been talking about did did make me think of um raiders independently before you mentioned the the sort of similarities but is i i would always expect there to be a good score so is there a good is there a good kind of classical sort of uh 
you know, rollicking adventure sort of score to this. It's got good music. Yeah, it's it's got it's got loads of loads of energy, and obviously with a film like this, it needs to have you know that kind of mood. And the composer is um, Raman Jawadi, who's done Iron Man and Pacific Rim and and Game oh, of right. Thrones and stuff. Oh, and okay. um, me being the film score fan that I am, I have listened to it, you know, quite a lot since seeing the film. And it, it's the, it's the kind of score that reflects what kind of film it is. You know, it's adventure. It's kind of got treasure and pirates involved and so yeah it's it's got good energy to it it, do, it does you know help the film in 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 the um, atmosphere and that sort of stuff so yeah um i noticed uh because i uh, think about ruben fleischer uh, you know one thing i associate with his films even venom where you know he was kind of put onto a a, a franchise that he didn't originate you know he didn't originate the character or anything but he kind of i think mo- what most people liked about the first venom film was the comedy you know yeah which maybe they weren't expecting because you, you could obviously take venom in in more of a kind of horror direction, um, it, was this was there was, was there a good you know sort of degree of comedy in this? Did it sort of fit with previous films like Venom and Zombieland in his kind of catalogue? It didn't, not not really. I mean, it didn't feel like it didn't have the kind of humour those films did. It just it did have throwaway kind of jokes that big yeah. tentpoles have, and then you know just you know just ones ones that are just there to, to generate a bit of a giggle, and, and that was all. Yeah, but yeah, I mean. It was it was generic and formulaic, but fun. I found it enjoyable. I was entertained the whole way through, and I was never bored. So, I mean, what more could you really ask for from an Uncharted film, to be honest? So, not re- not really hugely serious, but also not as playful as maybe his other films. <clears throat> it, it, it's, I mean, it's it's got no, it, it it is playful in its own sense. You know, it's going for that wanting yeah. adventure stuff. But yeah, it's it's yeah, it will fit in with his films. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed Zombieland a lot, and I, and, I, and I understand that, you know, when doing a would-be franchise, huge kind of adaptation like this, they're not going to want something that's kind of eccentric as Zombieland. I mean, Zombieland was very much a, a personal take, wasn't it? And you knew yeah. two minutes into watching Zombieland, you know, before the before the films really got going, you knew how idiosyncratic it was among zombie films. So that seems like yeah. something that he's got a kind of a, an ability to do. Well, that sounds much more promising than Moonfall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is yeah. quite funny because with the pre-public, I've not seen either. But with the pre-publicity, I would have kind of expected myself to be more interested in Moonfall and less in Uncharted. And you've kind of sold sold me more on, on Uncharted. And and uh, if it's possible to unsell someone <laughs> on Moonfall, <laughs> I think you've done that. Um, I've just got one more question for you, Sam, before before we wrap up. Um, yeah, maybe you know you 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 find some indications of of you know, the, the future for cinema is we do kind of um, hopefully leave permanently, but we're probably not going to permanently leave in the pandemic, but, you know, sort of at least go into a, a new, less dangerous stage of the pandemic. Do you sort of yeah. see any signs that it's going to be a relatively normal year for cinema or, or, and a relatively normal summer? Because actually with the Batman already being out, kind of pretty much already got the start of the summer movie season because the Batman was obviously such a huge release. So yeah. do you think it's going to be a kind of a normal a normal year at the movies? I mean I mean for when I saw the Batman it was it was sold out. So that's that's obviously just shows it. Um so yeah I mean with with the films that we've got coming out this year and obviously you know the size of what, what's coming out, I think this will be a monumental summer. With, with just just what's coming out and what we've got to look forward to. So yeah, so you I think, think it's, the, it's the it's the right diet of films to sort of bring people back to the cinemas in numbers. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and of course it will depend. You know, we're only a couple of weeks away 
from the Oscars, we had the BAFTAs last night. So you get yeah. profile being raised on certain films that are still in cinemas. And it's it, I, yeah. I imagine it's not going to be the case. I don't know how they're doing the Oscars this year, like in terms of the very stripped down version last year. But when they, you know, when they gave the best film award to Nomadland last year, I think Nomadland was almost out of the cinemas completely. You know, it was already yeah. on Disney Plus. And I think it'll be very different this year with, with whatever wins. You know, there's, yeah. a, there's, there's there's been a lot of very highly rated films over the last year. And I should point out as well that um, going back to Joanna Hogg, who, you know, is definitely working in a different um, ballpark from Uncharted and Moonfall, but Joanna Hogg's uh, Souvenir Part 2 was named the, the, the best film of the year by Sight and Sound. And yeah. know, Sight and Sound yeah. is a good, a good yardstick for a sort of middle ground between, you know, popular film reviewing and then the kind of stuff that we do as as film students, which is a bit more in depth and and yeah. tries to take into account the context. So, so yeah, again, again, recommending both of those films when, when Souvenir Part Two comes on to streaming. I'm sure it will come yeah. on to by player soon. Yeah. Um, well, let's hope it is a good year at the, at the cinema. I mean, I've certainly been going a lot more, and um, you know, it's nice that they've it's nice that they've stayed open for sort of six yeah. months in a row. You know, it was um, it was tough in 2020 and 21, wasn't it? I mean, just 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 thinking about what's coming up. I mean, we've got the second Avatar film this year, and we've got the next four. And personally, films that I'm so excited for, I just I just know that it'll be just a huge moment in time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I I don't really have time to talk about it, but it's going to be very very maybe get you back on around the time of the release of the Avatar film because it's going to be very yeah. interesting to see how that is received. It's been such a long time, and I think that you know, that space that Avatar created for itself when it was so successful in 2009 yeah. has been so taken over by other movies, you know, it's been 13 yeah, years. Yeah. So whether or not it's a case of a very dedicated audience waiting for another Avatar movie and they'll just, you know, absolutely flock to cinemas or whether it's a case of just the diehards, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, also with, I think, 3D being a lot less of a, a lot less of an attraction than it was in 2009 as well. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, maybe an Avatar special. Uh, I would need to watch rewatch Avatar because I've only seen it once, and that was at the cinema. So let's maybe think about having an Avatar special down the line. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if yeah. you're a, if you're a fan, we'll try and see if we can find someone else in in the student body who'll come on and um, uh, give it a bit of barracking, so we can have a bit of back and forth on. on yeah, Avatar. perhaps. But, yeah. Um, it yeah. will be really interesting though when it comes out. I think. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, listen, thanks for those reviews and um, we'll have you back on in a few episodes and, um, or, you know, in a couple of episodes and and we'll see what you think about uh, a new set of films. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. And uh, yeah, to all the listeners, thank you for listening to us. As I say, we're on Spotify, we're on Anchor. Um, there's some contacts where you can email us and um, give us some feedback about the podcast and there's details about things like open days and how to find out more about BA Film Studies at the University of Salford on the pages for the podcast as well. But yeah, thanks for joining us today. Cheers, Sam.